Well, kia ora koutou. you're listening to a Waiheke Radio Island Life election special. We're speaking to candidates who are standing for the Auckland Central electorate. Uh, and of course in that race we have some candidates who are, are likely to or you know have a likelihood of taking out the electorate MP role and others who are there to to raise profile on on other issues or on their party vote uh, one of those candidates is Waiheke resident Damien Sycamore who's standing for top and he's joining me today uh, kia ora Damien kia ora thanks Chris so uh We've started off the, these interviews all pretty much the same way. Um, you know, many people won't know who you are. Tell us a, a little bit about yourself. So I am a pretty um, bog standard dude. I moved back to Waiheke five years ago with my partner of 10-ish years, Maggie, who's a sort of long-term island resident. A little bit peripatetic. We've sort of been back and forth down to Wellington and um, through Auckland. But we've settled back into um, Waiheke life with our three-year-old son, Frank. Um the house buying process is what really got me into politics buying a house for my generation i'm 35 now and for people that are younger than me has proven to be not just extremely difficult but really kind of energy sapping innovating disappointing and and basically just soul crushing eh? so i started researching why this was so difficult in New Zealand and why specifically and uniquely New Zealand's housing market was so broken and it took me down this massive rabbit hole of which I'm probably about halfway through you know sort of like when you're in a I use this metaphor sometimes when I'm feeling foolish but like if you're in a cave and you get given a torch and you start shining that torch around the walls it shows you how much more you've got to learn and see and so we'll, we'll come back. Let's come back to the housing issue um, yeah. because we'll, you know we'll explore a bunch of local issues. But um, you know that you see you, you've clearly got some kind of political passion there. But what, you know what are you doing when you're not uh, running around talking to people about so uh, elections? I'm the recent general manager of the Waikiki Community Housing Trust. Um, our strategy is to activate houses that have fallen out of long-term residential housing stock. And it's going to be fucking difficult. Like, it's hard. The system is geared against providing affordable housing in so many different ways. Um, but my skill set is, you know, I've, I've worked my way through from being an absolute loser, you know, like go nowhere, do nothing loser at university for seven years to, you know, taking sort of shitty sales job after shitty sales job and eventually getting myself into a position where the sort of previous five years I've been working in the senior leadership team for a pretty successful um, you know international but based on K Road construction software company and I was able to sort of accumulate some funds to give me a little bit of freedom to be able to focus on the things that I was thinking about all the time anyway and that's obviously mainly affordable housing and how it's so skewed and so um, just basically ineffective in New Zealand so that's I've I've tried to kind of squash those two together, what I'm thinking about and what I'm working on, and it's been um it's been a successful year so far in that respect. It means I you know don't have to keep taking off one hat at work and putting on another one and then taking it off when you finish work. So so now my um I've sort of streamlined, you know, focus on making sure that Frank's playing, my son's playing and learning. Focus on making sure that our family is super strong, our whanau is super strong, and we love each other deeply, and then just break up 
New Zealand's over-reliance on, on tipping all of its money into property is the only way to get rich in this country because of the negative impacts that it has. All right. So, I mean, as I said in the intro, um, you know, you are, what, I think, number eight on, on the top list. Um, so, you know... Pretty much, uh, with zero chance. Yes, <laughs> zero chance. You know, I mean, we, I mean, I mean. Let's look at it. I mean, the the two ways that that top can get into parliament are yep. obviously breaking that five percent threshold, which no poll has had you near. Yep. Uh, or or the party leader, uh, Ruff Munji, taking out the island seat in Christchurch, and yes. that doesn't look like that's going to happen at the moment either. So the second one is obviously more sort of tangible than the first. Um, we did a bigger poll. So polling is really rough. Like as a minor party, polling is just one of the roughest things in the world. Um, I'll give you an, a sort of concrete example. Obviously on Tuesday we had the leaders debate. So the leaders debate was panned universally as being insipid, uninspiring, pointless, you know, just like a shit fight. And yet... On Wednesday night, if you watch One News, Jessica Much Mackay comes out and goes, we've just done a poll, and as you can see, obviously the two big parties have been buoyed by the attention that they got from the major leaders' debate. And there's this kind of like self-fulfilling, frustrating prophecy, which is just like attention means more support. And because of the sort of the way that incumbent parties get so much more broadcasting money, and so much more donation money. It's really, really, impo- well, almost impossible to crack through that 5% threshold. And that's one of the reasons why the Electoral Commission has continued to reiterate how we can improve our democracy in New Zealand is one, drop that 5% threshold down to about 35 And also, obviously, you know, drop the voting age down to 16 because those people are engaged and, like I say, sort of got a lot of skin in the game. So they should be involved and, and enfranchised. But in terms of like how RAF is going in Ireland, we're not going to know really until October the 15th. Because at the moment, when even when the taxpayers' unions did their polls, it's like 40% unknown voters, you know, as in 40% undecided, who don't know who they're going to vote for. So we've got a big ground campaign um, scheduled for down there. We, we would have liked, um, you know, maybe some support from one of the other parties that sort of had... MMP is the focus rather than, uh, maybe I won't go into that too much, but it is possibly a missed opportunity for New Zealand to really sort of um, like instill some, a bit more plurality into our, um, our, our parliament going forward. Because if top doesn't make it this year, top may not survive another go. You know, that'll be the fourth go around, fourth, um, you know, that'll be three failures. And there's, there's never been a party that's cracked that 5% threshold that didn't come from a walker jump, so where an already known MP created a new party. So it's really difficult in New Zealand for that kind of new, fresh voice to actually enter parliament. Yep. And in a, you know, in, a, in a sort of climate, literal climate that's changing, um, having fresh voices that aren't really well captured seems to me to be pretty bloody important, but... You know, there's a lot of other issues on people's minds, so I don't yeah. begrudge the New Zealand population for not all voting top. <laughs> so, I mean, as I say, I mean, so the, the likelihood of you you being in Parliament are, are very, very low. Me personally, um, for sure, but, yeah. But, um, you know, 
here on Waiheke Radio, it's about Waiheke perspectives and views and since you're standing. So we wanted to kind of talk to you about, um, you know, the, the policies that you are standing um, and supporting and how they would impact on, on local issues. So, you know, you, you started talking about housing earlier and that's clearly one of the, the top issues uh, in last year's local body elections and this year's election. And... Uh, you know, so when you look at that specifically in a Waiheke context, um, you know, what are the things that that are being proposed by Top? How would they make it an impact and go to redress some of the issues we're facing on the island, which would be people unable to find rentals, cost of rentals, um, you know, va- house, va- lots of vacant houses. Lots of vacant houses, yeah. 30, 30, I mean, in the last census, it was about 30, 35% of houses were vacant. So TOP's got a pretty comprehensive... The, the main thing that TOP's concerned about is we're concerned about the relationship between people's incomes and the cost of housing. Through this campaign in Auckland Central, cost of living, man, like it's like ad nauseum. You just hear it, cost of living, cost of living, cost of living, cost of living, from pundits, parties, punters, everyone. But the cost of living in New Zealand is about 40 to 60% just the cost of housing. So if you don't address the cost of housing, yet the cost of living is always going to be really difficult. It's going to be like eating soup with a fork. You know, it's just going to be hard to solve and hard to finish. The Opportunities Party is trying to sort of address the core issue, which is that New Zealanders put about 10 times more money into residential property, an unproductive unproductive asset class, than we do into businesses. Because we underinvest in our businesses, our productivity remains low. We have a shallow capital pool, which means our businesses often fuck off to Australia and the United States to go and actually get some money. And the corollary is because we overinvest in property, we have this massively, obscenely unaffordable housing market. So the Opportunities Party wants to kind of zero in on that specifically by doing a number of things. The first, this is probably lesser known, the first is that we would make it cost. So if an investor wants to buy another property, currently obviously banks enable that leverage. If an investor wants to buy another property, Top is currently campaigning that that investor would need to stump up 100% of the purchase price. So no longer be able to leverage to buy another property, which is the great enabler of the bubble of New Zealand's housing market. So that one would basically drop investor demand almost about, we, we think by about 75%, which gives those first home buyers the opportunity to buy a lot more properties, which is obviously excellent, but it would bring down the price of housing. Now, the other thing that we'll be proposing is a land value tax. Now, this is sort of a complicated thing, but it's actually... Well, it's, it's not that complicated, really. Is it? I mean, people are used to it because rates is a land value tax. Correct. So Denmark, which has been consistently either the first or second happiest country um, for the last 20 years, has had a land value tax in place called a Grunskild for as long as they've been a democracy. So a really long time, well over 150 years. The way that it works is... In urban residential land, so not commercial, Māori or rural, a small annual tax is levied on the value of that land that you own. The idea behind a land value tax is, one, in New Zealand, it's our largest asset class by a country mile. So that's where all of the wealth is in New Zealand, by you know a huge margin. Um, so that's how wealth is inherited and passed down. So we'd like that wealth to recontribute back to the community. Two, a land value tax begins to encourage development of land by either pushing landowners to either sell or build 
currently, yeah, rates is a good example. So if I own a car park, I pay less rates than if I own an apartment block, which in a housing crisis is kind of insane, considering that we're incentivizing landowners to do less with their land. A land value tax changes that balance so that we're incentivizing landowners to do more with their land or sell it to people that are prepared to do more. There's countless examples of, of people bucking the market trends and pressures like Simplicity Living who are building like affordable, amazingly situated as in close to public transport, close to jobs, close to good bakeries and amazing Shiswan noodle houses and shit out in Point England, you know, building things well in this market. But the reason that they're able to do that is they are not for profit. They've got a whole bunch of people giving their time for nothing. They develop themselves and they they want to the Kiwis. They can use the $5 billion that they've got under management um, uh, via their KiwiSaver funds to actually buy their own shit. So they don't need to go through banks. The banks in New Zealand have really sort of like just they've they've they own New Zealand's capital. Um, banks in New Zealand don't invest. They just move people's money. And what they've done is they've we've 85% of the bank's books now in New Zealand are just held in residential mortgages. It's a it's like an it's a one-way fund for the banks to make their way. So your fund. your ta- your pick is that by putting this land value tax on or you know kind of, you know or you know I'll just call it rates which yep. you're not calling it but people understand that 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 is going to drive the occupancy of currently vacant houses. Absolutely. Right. So one of the things I was interested in is that the policy doesn't seem to address capital gains. In fact, like National, you propose uh, removing the bright line test and and, uh, and reintroducing interest deductibility, uh, and there's no capital gains component in your tax plan. And the capital gains on houses is another area that is incredibly um, important in speculation. Completely agree. Like, completely agree. And this is kind of where the complexity comes in. Because we're, we're saying, you know, it, it seems to sort of um, contravene our whole, you know, idea of what we're trying to do as a political party. Take interest deductibility back in, give that back to landlords, and get rid of the Brightline test, which is currently the only real tax on property in New Zealand. The reason that we would do that, if you note when Nicola Willis and Christopher Luxon are talking about for the foreign buyer thing that they're doing, so over $2 million properties would be available to purchase by foreign owners, foreign buyers, at a 15% fee or whatever they're calling it nowadays. What they say when they're doing that is when their numbers get questioned, what they say is that we're also going to get rid of the Brightline test or bring it back down to two years, which is going to flood the market with these properties because people don't want to sell if they're going to get taxed at 33% on the gain. The problem with the capital gains tax is it actually disincentivizes and slows and holds back properties from being sold. A land value tax does the exact opposite because it's a small annual tax. It's costing you to hold. It begins to cost to deprive the community of the housing that it needs. Whereas a capital gains tax or the Brightline test, they actually sort of put these guards up to basically, like sheep, corral those properties in an unsold state, which is why we have so many sort of vacant properties in 
all around Waiheke specifically, but also through Auckland. You know, the, the empty homes in Auckland's just insane. I used to work in construction, um, commercial construction. That was what our software sort of aimed at. And the amount of apartments that don't go sold that you never hear about is staggering, man. Like 30% in some property that's still unsold of some projects. With regards to interest tax deductibility, this one again is kind of semi-complicated, um, but it costs, if you have a mortgage, that interest costs, you used to be able to deduct that interest cost from how much money you made as a landlord from your rent. Now, the Labor government has tried to deal with some of the prices of housing by, again, trying to sort of take away some of that property investor demand, so making it more expensive to be a landlord, less attractive. And what they've done is they've kind of phased this interest deductibility thing in. So at the moment, for this tax year, your interest costs can only be deducted at 50%. So let's say if I, it's, I mean, it's quite, it's quite good to bring this into concrete numbers. It's going to take a little bit, of, you know, maybe a minute to explain it, so sorry. Um, but let's say I've got a million dollar mortgage as in a, a, it's a 100% million dollar mortgage and currently interest rates are at about 6.5, maybe 7.5, somewhere between that. It's just say 7%, which means it is going to cost $70,000 just interest to own this property, let alone principal, let alone ma maintenance rates, whatever. That's $70,000, only $35,000 of that can currently be deducted against your rent that you're getting. So to reduce your tax bill. That $35,000 is not going to need to be paid until 2025. Because the tax bill for this year won't be wound up until March-ish, April-ish, June-ish, July-ish next year. And then it won't be due until about February in 2025. So February 2025 is when this shit's about to hurt. New Zealand doesn't have enough time with regards to unaffordable housing and not enough housing to wait until 2025 for this, this, um, these changes to bite. We actually need to move now. I always say that global, globally, climate change and overshoot are obviously the world's biggest stories, but in New Zealand, it's housing unaffordability. You know, we've got home ownership rates at 70 year lows. We've got the most stressed renters anywhere in the OECD by like a long way. And we, in the 12 months to June of 2023, six times more New Zealand citizens left the country than just 2019. So people are giving up hope of ever being able to actually afford to live in New Zealand. And the Opportunities Party is, is actually trying to address that, the heart of the issue, which is that we've got land that's sitting there doing fuck all. So there's a couple of things, then I want to move on to some other subjects. I mean... The, it seems you know that that policy seems um, very kind of squarely focused on opening up the market to enable first home buyers and so on to get in there. Um, what about you know? But as as you've expressed, you know, it, it doesn't kind of address those capital gains and and the interest stuff, which seem to be some of the drivers on rents. So you know, as well as being for most people now, I mean, it's about renting rather than buying. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I'll get you to talk about that. But the other thing is around housing intensification. 
um, which on the island, you know, we have, you know, if we look to the local body elections last year, almost universally, people said, yes, we need to have more housing on the island. Almost universally, people said, but we don't want to dense, uh, we don't want to, you know, um, have greater density of housing. Yeah, it really is a rock and a hard place situation, specifically on Waiheke Island. So one of the things in renting, and this is something that I've really encountered um, after working with the Waikiki Community Trust now for a little while, the interest deductibility laws and the Healthy Homes campaign, you know, they are, they're good initiatives, but they do have this short-term blowback on renters. They take some properties out of the market, which is what we're trying to reactivate um, via the trust. But the interest deductibility means that people are really reticent about taking on more debt, um, which means that yeah, potentially there are some there are less rental properties available right now. Some of these numbers are quite blown out and um, maybe a bit nebulous, and we don't actually get good data on how houses are used in New Zealand. That's one of the other things we're trying to do at the trust is understand how every property in Surfdale and Ostend is actually being used properly who owns them, what they're being used for, what's their long-term plan. But the other thing that the Opportunities Party is really campaigning on is establishing a rolling $3 billion community housing fund. Community housing providers, Ototahi, Auckland City Mission, Salvation Army, they're the ones actually building public um, housing at the moment, community housing, social and community housing. It's not kainga order. And a $3 billion, well, it's about 40% kainga order through private contractors and 60% community. And then kainga order comes in and buys those or, or funds them. So we want to enable those community housing providers to build more properties because it's only with plentiful and affordable social and community housing that you can keep a lid on rents. So if there is an alternative to the private market, and let's be clear, New Zealand is a bit of an outlier here in terms of in the OECD. New Zealand's only got about 3.8% of its how, uh, private of its rental stock in community and social housing. The rest is all privately owned. So our private landlords are able to dominate that price point and control it. It should be it should be like um, this should be taught in schools, but in New Zealand, everyone is kind of like. When, when rents go up, they're like, oh, you know, landlords got, landlords got, they got costs, man. You know, mortgages, costs. I don't begrudge that. Um, if they do genuinely have costs, then, yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't, it's reasonable for them to want to be able to pay for their investment. But in New Zealand, 82% of New Zealand's housing stock doesn't have a mortgage on it. So we do have, you know, the, the tail wagging the dog in terms of 18% of New Zealand's housing stock is, is, is does have mortgages, and yep, that should be rising with mortgage rate increases, but the other 82% doesn't. And that's one of the things. There's so much wealth held in unmortgaged land and residential property in New Zealand. And given the, the way that it's so cancerously affecting the rest of our society, that, that build up and hold up, um, yeah, that's what we want to smash right open. And, you know, it's, the, it's by providing plentiful and affordable social and community housing that we would really have that sort of long-term positive impact on and bring down rent prices. So how do you address what's plaguing um, housing intensification and social housing at the moment, which is NIMBYism? Yeah, that, I mean, it's hard. Like, it is really hard. There is, it's a, it's a great question. I've been paying attention to, like, a lot of what's happening up in Beach Haven. 
Um, specifically, they're kind of a similar community to Waiheke. People moved out there to sort of get away from the city but still have access to the city. Um, they don't have the same kind of septic um, and wastewater constraints as Waiheke does, which Waiheke is going to be a basket case for housing for quite some time. Um, there's very little that we can... So th there is, there's, there's a couple of things I think are specific to Waiheke which are all worth talking about. The first one is I run around the island quite a lot. Um, that includes running up to Oropu, but also sort of, you know, running around the, the more inhabited parts of the island. And if you pay attention to what's being built, which I do try and do, it is it is 99% big boppers, you know, monster mansions up on cliff sides with the most amazing views. The only affordable house that I'm aware of that's been built on Waiheke um, was the one that the trust built through sort of 2018 to 2020, which was a nightmare and broke all of them. And they're only just putting the pieces back together because of how frustrating and difficult building affordably on Waiheke Island was. But they built it, massive success um, in, in that regard. Obviously, they had to sell it because interest rates started going up. But on Waiheke, you know, the, the way, let, let me just take a, a, a back step here. When you develop a house or, or a project, let's say maybe a three or four storey terrace building, the 40 to 50% of that price is land. On Waiheke, it's even higher. The price of land is what makes building affordable housing so difficult. But on Waiheke, you don't actually have the option of splitting that land cost up into more dwellings because you can't build densely on Waiheke. I do know of one um, building family that's building two properties on one smallish section at the moment. I probably can't go into exactly where that is, but really interested to hear how they're doing that. And I'm sure they're doing that with a lot of intelligence because they've been doing it for quite a while. But to the average person, um, building density on Waiheke Island is basically just impossible. I don't know what the solution is there. You know, we do, we're an island. Everything that we, um, all excretion goes out to sea and we want that to be treated. And, you know, we're trying to look after Tikapa Moana as well. And we're trying to look after the Hauraki Gulf. So it's a rock and a hard place, like I say. Um, that's why the, that's why I am, and I've managed to convince the Waiheke Community Housing Trust on the strategy too, focused on trying to activate existing stock. Um, that's the, the fastest lever that I think we can pull and it's going to be a real test of Waiheke's community spirit as to whether they can actually get behind that. Alright, so let's move on just quickly to a couple of other um, key local issues. Um, one, uh, another is, is transport and ferries. Uh, the Opportunities policy, Party policy on public transport is free public transport for under 30s. Um, so... I mean, does that open, you know, if that was to come into play and, I mean, if we were to see the ferry routes included in the public transport um, model, I mean, are there unintended consequences of having free transport to under 30s to and from Waiheke? Um, I don't know if there's, we... It's great for, great for if you're, you're 25 and want to come to a winery, right? Yeah, <laughs> or come to a rave. A forest road, baby. Um, so yeah, there probably would that would probably stimulate um, single day tourism demand. You're, you're probably bang on, and it would probably infuriate every Waihekian because some of those like those rowdy groups when you're waiting in line and on the ferry are just insufferable. Um, I hadn't really thought of it from that specific use case. Obviously, Waiheke does, whenever it becomes easy to get to Waiheke, it, it does go up. But, why, you know, Waiheke makes most of its money from tourism. And there needs to be this kind of 
balanced, judicious way of, of, of weighing up how much tourism we can actually handle and want and how much of a community we still need to preserve and, and foster around, or the other way around, how much tourism we can have around our community, I suppose is the way to put it. Public transport is the surest, cleanest way to decarbonise the emissions profile of that 20% of, our, of New Zealand's emissions comes from transport. You know, if we can get people out of cars and into public transport, that is very beneficial. And we want to stimulate the build-up of that private transport by getting people really up, sorry, public transport, by getting people when they're younger used to relying on public transport. Now, with regards to the ferries, yep, I've been at the protests. I've worked with Bianca and the team on um, fair affairs. Uh, you know, it's it's an outlier why the Fuller's Waiheke service is, A, considered to be integral to the regional public transport model, but is not part of the PTOM. Um, I'm sure Fuller's has made yeah, a reasonable return on the lobbying that they did to Stephen Joyce through that campaign, um, and it's it's time for that to change. It's I remember in Economics 101, which is a course that I failed <laughs> um, in my first year at university, mainly just due to lack of attendance and being a moron. Um, but they actually used the Waiheke ferry model as an example of an inelastic service and how putting up the prices doesn't change demand at all. Because if you live in Waiheke, you need to get over to Auckland. It just it, what, it costs what it costs and you just suck it up or you have to move off the island. Bringing Waiheke into... You know, Waiheke is becoming more of a suburb of Auckland, I think, every year. As in it becomes more and more reasonable, particularly with this kind of mainstreaming of working from home, working from home, for people to think of living on the beautiful paradise that is Waiheke Island and still having a, you know, a reasonable connection to Auckland and having a, a job, it becomes far more like tenable. Um, I would like, I have a rosy view of all public services in the sense that I think a public service can be just as good, if not better, than a public service, and that the main competitive advantage it has is that it doesn't need to make a profit. So I think, you know, with good governance and good structures in place, yes, I think the Waiheke Ferry Service would benefit from having, you know, free for under 30s in a, in a long-term view, yeah. Um, you talked about emissions, so let's just kind of flip on to environment and, um, again, yep. like having a look at the, the Opportunities Party policy on that, it seems it's predominantly focused on uh, emission reduction, uh, mitigation of, of climate change. Some of the bigger uh, environmental issues in our community at the moment are around, I suppose, environmental restoration, in particular the Hauraki Gulf. The, the policy seems to be relatively silent on those issues, and, but um, I mean, how would you see top policy um, impacting on things like Hauraki Gulf protection, marine protection, marine reserves and so on? Yeah, so that's, this is... Um it's these are all huge issues um the first thing i'll say is that one of the smaller but probably the most important part of our environmental policy is that we are in massive support of creating a genuine bona fide um, biodiversity credits market in new zealand and globally biodiversity credits are um kind of the without sounding too like crypto boy which i'm really not Biodiversity credits are kind of the next big thing. New Zealand was a world leader in setting up an ETS, the Emissions Trading Scheme, a carbon market. Um, unfortunately, 
since in, you know in the 33 years that we set it up it's been fucking kicked around and treated with so much disrespect and our emissions trading scheme is basically laughable now um everyone in the world knows that new zealand's emissions trading scheme is one the only big emissions trading scheme that includes forestry offsets and <laughs> lets that continue and two the whole like ndc the nationally determined contribution calculations that new zealand is relying on and purporting to you know um think it a good yeah, very reminiscent of Lux and Nicola Willis's um, accounting for their tax plan is absolutely bogus and crazy. The biodiversity credits, on the other hand, are a really interesting thing for us to be able to get behind. What a biodiversity credit is is basically, let's say, I've got a kinnebaron out in um, the middle of the Hauraki Gulf, and you know that's not hypothetical, obviously. Um, a biodiversity credit says, okay, in this local area. If I was if I was an organization, let's say I'm Fonterra, and I emit this much by boiling all my whole milk my, my milk to get whole milk powder and I use all this coal. If I was to spend a whole bunch of money regenerating the Hauraki Gulf, get some scientists involved, get some mussel spats, get some oyster spats, get all of you know, regeneration. And in a let's say 20 hectare, and it's gonna cost me this much. And then the scientists, this is kind of one of the drawbacks of biodiversity credits, it's quite um it's quite costly to measure, you know, um, how much of an offset on my current um, activities is that? Now, that's the way that it's kind of done at the moment, offsets, offsets. But um, we want to move that into a credit space so that um, rather than just trying to like be like Rio Tinto and be like, okay, we're going to absolutely desecrate this environment over here, but we'll look after this one over here, which is obviously kind of, we're at a crisis point with regards to climate. We don't just want to net out. We need to do more. So the biodiversity credit system would allow, would enable industry to actually stimulate the biodiversity growth of this local area and it would be you know it would be able to be marketed and it would be able to be stimulated and that's kind of what we're trying to create specifically at the moment it's for farmers to be able to on their kind of marginalized land which currently just gets um, pockmarked with pine um we would like them to be able to be like, right, let's get some Karnaka and Manaka in here and, you know, let's get the Nahiri back in place. And we would like that to be encouraged by a biodiversity credit market where they could actually make money from that. But also, um, you know, Māori land would be able to do that and hold that in biodiversity credit. It's one of those things where we, we, we want to start paying for success. Um, and I, it's going to be a long time before I think the whole world realizes how reliant they are on the ecosystem around that's around them you know at the moment i think we're all largely guilty aside from the ultra enlightened few i think we're all largely guilty of kind of being like yeah but what's the monetary return on investment that i'm going to get from that but sooner rather than later um you know it's going to become abundantly clear that it's you know it's, it's pretty hard to use money if the whole ecosystem around us falls over so yeah i think that there will be um hopefully as fast as possible like today would be great and um, people would realize that investing in a, a thriving ecosystem and thriving biodiversity credit market would be a good thing to be doing so that's kind of one of our, our um, lesser known environmental policies yep. there so i'm speaking to damien sycamore who's the top candidate for auckland central last last subject damien um waiheke is uh, has a low median wage it has uh, a significant number of low-wage casual uh, jobs. One of the things that 
as, as kind of I've kind of wondered for a long time, and again, looking, I see very little on this, is what's your approach on industrial relations? What um, you know, how do you see? Uh, you know, what's your approach on job security, on on wages, on uh, you know people's uh, their balance of power and employment? So one of the best things that the Labour government and the unions have done over the last three years is drive in fair pay agreements. One of the scariest things, and I actually wrote a song about this recently, my first ever song, it actually came out pretty good. Um, I can sing it for you if you want, Chris. Um, well, you can because we really like local music on oh, Wake so, Radio. Um, I've actually been singing with the Rocky Bay Folk Club over the last few months. It's, fuck, that's great. That's such a cool thing. But um, is fair pay agreements and national... National Act both want to get away from fair pay agreements, which is an absolute insanity. So New Zealand, like I said at the beginning, we tip about 10 times more money into residential property than we do into businesses. What that means is our businesses don't reinvest in their businesses to grow productivity, which means our jobs stay low wage, and which means you know you can get more money by going over to Australia where they do prioritise R&D and they do reinvest in their businesses. New Ze- top wants to reorient New Zealand's addiction, um, pathological addiction to tipping all of their money into property by making it easier, harder to invest in property and easier to invest in businesses. You know, like actually networking those that business capital flow properly would make it easier for someone to just put $10,000 into Movax Emerge Fund and grow some little startups. So that's one thing. That's that's kind of like a fundamental thing. Um, we need that capital flow to move towards our productive um, industry. The other thing is, with the land value tax, we reckon we're going to get seven billion dollars a year from that, and we would offset. We would use all of that money to bring down income tax rates. So if you're on eighty grand a year, you'd get four thousand dollars more. You'd keep four thousand dollars more a year with tops income tax cuts again coming back to that sort of our main focus is the relationship between income and the cost of housing and cost of living in new zealand so there's those two things get more money flowing into productive industry so that the um, businesses can grow and jobs and get more valuable and two let people keep more of their money because obviously we're in a cost of living crisis and the price of housing is just so obscene in new zealand but with regards to um industrial relations I'm sort of with you, like I'm probably about as left as it's possible to get. Um, Top's ability to campaign on a land value tax was what made me eventually want to work with them. Um, But we don't have, to my knowledge, and I think I'm pretty much bang on, we don't actually take a position on industrial relations, which is, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, me personally, I think fair pay agreements and setting a floor of what an industry um, can expect to earn and, and can only work above is an absolute no-brainer, particularly because it takes um, big business, um, their main uh, rallying cry for why unions are bad, it actually takes that completely away. Like business, when they hear about a union, they're like, oh, we're gonna become anti, we're gonna become uncompetitive, and we're just, the people are gonna be more competitive than us, and it's like, well, if everyone in that industry has to play by this fair pay agreement, that's the new floor for all bus drivers or all nurses or whatever it is, then how can it be uncompetitive? You know, that's the new standard. So I think what they've done with fair pay agreements is just, is excellent and exactly the role of government. You know, like, so I would, I, I'll, I'll champion that to the cows come home. And it's one of the main reasons why when we are in these candidate debates, um, I uh, call out the right on their, you know, their nasty 
position that they'll scrap fair pay agreements when they seem to have no understanding of how beneficial that is. So yes, I mean, top could do more in that space. But this is one of the things, you know, through the election season, you get asked as a party and, you know, RAF's just constantly bombarded with us being asked to take positions on things. You know, we don't have a lot of money at all. We're all running up. I mean, I've paid for everything in my campaign so far. I think I'm a couple of grand down. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of time. I don't get any money from HQ. None of our candidates do. It, it is just, it's a, you know, it's a labor of love. But being able to have a policy on everything like the Greens do, you know, their manifesto is a chunk. And Darlene Tana, who, you know, is an absolute G and an absolute legend, she's helped with that consensus building, but we don't have the resources to be able to have a position on everything. So we're really focused on what we think is the most important issue. They're all important issues, though. Mm. I mean, strategy is what you say no to, is what we used to sort of glibly say. So it's frustrating not to be able to say that we completely agree with fair pay agreements and here's how our policy supports and enhances that, but we do. I've been speaking to Damien Sycamore, who's a Waiheke Islander, who's standing in the Auckland electorate, uh, Auckland Central electorate, and is number eight on the list for the Opportunities Party. Thanks very much for joining us, Damien. Cheers. Thank you.